When you have a moment of change, I thought that moment of change came with it opportunity. The decision had been made by the legislature to do this. How do we make this change the most forward-thinking way in which we could change the Medicaid program? Because I sat in that seat of looking across health and human services, I was very much asking myself as a leader to say, how do I make North Carolina healthy? Full stop. This is The Other 80, and I'm Claudia Williams. On this podcast, we talk about how we can build health in America beyond medical care. We spend $14 trillion, or 20% of the nation's GDP, on health care. Most of these resources are focused on medical services, which determine only about 20% of overall health. So, We're here to talk about the other 80%, the food we eat, our relationships with people and our communities, our access to safe housing, and so much more. This season, we are sharing deep conversations about the things that keep people healthy beyond medical care and the cutting-edge policies and programs supporting whole person health. We won't shy away from hard dialogue. We'll talk about what's working, what's not, and how to move rapidly and equitably towards this new model. Our guest today is Dr. Mandy Cohen. As Secretary of Health in North Carolina, she led the state's COVID response and the transformation of the Medicaid program, focusing on whole-person care and the social drivers of health. Mandy also served as the COO and Chief of Staff at CMS, helping implement the Affordable Care Act. This was a powerful interview. Mandy talked about the importance of sitting in and listening through the discomfort of really difficult conversations needed to move the needle towards health equity. Just a note before we dive in, Medicaid geeks know that states are launching whole person care programs through Medicaid 1115 waivers. For our geeks in training out there, those waivers allow states to innovate and test new Medicaid models with approval from the federal government. Okay, let's dive in. Please welcome Dr. Mandy Cohen. North Carolina, under your leadership, was one of the very first states to offer social services like food and housing support and other kinds of social supports under the Medicaid program. And we'll be hearing from some of our California colleagues who have been launching a similar initiative But I'm just really interested in having you described what it was that you implemented in these pilots and what evidence and data did you use? Kind of how did you think about the need for this and how to sort of justify it within both the state and the federal context? Sure. That's a big question. Maybe let me step back first so folks understood the context with which North Carolina uh, was Uh, in in terms of its Medicaid program when I arrived, which was in 2017, it was undergoing a a transition to managed care. So North Carolina was the largest state that had not yet transitioned its Medicaid program to managed care. The legislature had voted on that after years of debate before I got there, before the governor I work for was elected. Um, And and so it was... uh, it, that that process was happening. And so, you know, when you have a moment of change, I, I thought that moment of change came with it opportunity. 
Um, and I said, well, okay, the, de- the decision had been made by the legislature to do this. How do we make this change the most forward thinking way in which we could change the Medicaid program? And it was, it coincided with the time that I arrived in North Carolina, not as the Medicaid director, but as the Secretary of Health and Human Services. And that was really influential in my thinking. I, I, I wonder if I was, was put in the role of Medicaid director, if we would have gone in this direction, but because I sat in that seat of looking across health and human services, I was very much asking myself as a leader to say, how do I make North Carolina healthy? Stop, full stop. Like, how do we think about buying health for the communities in North Carolina? And how do I think about every lever, whether that's Medicaid or the other levers of economic services or education, um, mental health? How do I pull every lever? That was the kernel of, of how we got started. So we said, okay, well, how do we pull the Medicaid lever to make people healthier in North Carolina? We went to those folks and said, hey, you did a small pilot here or there. What did you learn? How should we think about this? We went certainly to the published evidence literature, which I will say is slim. And we we sort of put all of that together for CMS um, because we had to prove to them to say, look, if you're going to spend Medicaid dollars differently, here's the evidence base to rely it on. And you anyone can go to our 1115 and look at our bibliography. Um, and here is the way we would go about this. Here's how we would price it. Here's what we would pay for and how much we would pay if we were, for example, going to do mold remediation in an asthmatic child's home, right? If we were going to go in and say, okay, let's pull up your carpet, well, how much do you, should Medicaid pay for that, <laughs> right? It's right. really <laughs> detailed, not sexy work. <laughs> um, but we went through that process. In addition, so that's the policy work. And then we also went through thinking about, okay, execution. I'm, I'm an operations gal. Um, I really, I think about operations right from the get-go. So we said, well, how is this going to, how are we going to make this work in reality? And that is when we realized we needed an integrated platform to do referrals to these social services as, as well as a mechanism to pay for it. Um, and we had already started down the path of creating that integrated platform, which with what became NC Care 360, um, which was a partnership between um, Unite Us and the United Way um, to really power a statewide singular platform to connect healthcare and, and social services. So that was really it. So it was the policy moment of change and and creating some some infrastructure to sort of move us move us forward. You've touched on something that Brad also mentioned from California, where he said, you know, the great thing is we can refer to a sobering center or asthma remediation. The bad thing is those capacities didn't exist in every community. Absolutely. And he was describing that that was kind of a bridge. Well, it wasn't something that was easily tackleable within a policy environment where you need capital, you need infrastructure, you need new staffing. And you touched on this for philanthropy. Do you, as a policymaker, how did you think about your role in actually enabling the existence of new infrastructure that might serve the program? Frankly, I think folks get paralyzed at this point saying, well, if I can't fix all the problems, should I start? 
And my my bias was always, let's put one foot in front of the other. Let's solve this problem. Then we'll solve the next problem. Then we'll solve the next problem. Um, because, right, there was also, you know, when folks were like, well, I don't want to screen people if I can't be sure that I can get them to a resource. And I was like, I, I hear you. I, I, I The thing is, is if we don't screen, we don't know the unmet need. And thus, as policymakers, we can't solve that problem. So the visibility is so crucial. So I just wanted to say that. But yes, you are right. By creating infrastructure, it didn't create a food bank where there was one needed or a domestic violence shelter where there was one needed. Um, but what, like I said, it does show gaps. And I think gaps and, and data really help mobilize communities to make investments in a coordinated way, whether that's philanthropy or on, on the government side as well. Understand there's also a lot of businesses, big, big healthcare businesses and health systems that have corporate responsibilities to invest in their communities, right? They're nonprofit entities or they're doing corporate giving. When you can show them data about where there are gaps in their communities, that's really powerful to align. So that one, I would say that that data is really important to then bring visibility, you know, to the right, to the right folks. But I think same from a policy place, we also thought about creating that capacity as well. This is where going back to using the Medicaid dollars mattered, right? We didn't just pay for navigation, we're paying for the end service. So when you pay for the end service, that means you are creating a market, right? That there's demand now that can get paid for by Medicaid. And we we see new entities saying, oh, now there's a way that I can sustain myself. I can get paid and do this in various communities. And so you actually create the um, you soften the ground for those kinds of businesses saying like, now there, there's a need that needs to be met. There's a way I can sustain this business. If I create it, I'm going to go take, take that step forward, um, and, and do it. And now we were able to pair some of those fledgling interested folks with, again, with philanthropy, to help small businesses who are working in communities to really try to run their their businesses well and to be able to interact with the government, which is its own special skill. Um, so we had to think about all of that infrastructure building and kudos to the, the Medicaid team in North Carolina for really trying to think about infrastructure and kudos to CMS for giving us um, the flexibility to to invest ahead of time, right? We did 18 months of work during a pandemic before we launched the program. I'm curious what your thoughts are about how well Medicaid works as a platform for these kinds of initiatives as a federal state partnership. What works well? Where are the like sticky places? How well does Medicaid work to support the kind of pilots and other initiatives you're describing? Yeah. You know what? I think that actually Medicaid has a built-in mechanism for states to raise their hand to say, I want to do something different. I think that's pretty unique and uh, special. And a lot of states take advantage of that, right? They say, and 1115 literally is asking for the opportunity to do something that the parameters of the law and the program don't give you, per, you know, purview to do. Um, so that's exciting. The issue, though, is then you get all these experiments and difficulty in scaling beyond the one state. Um, and everyone has different priorities about what they want to pilot and how they want to pilot and who, what, what amount of state dollars they're willing to put behind that. 
Um, so what happens is I think there are these great experiments and it is, but it is slow to change the overall program. Um, it happens, it's moving. And I, I, I take heart in watching all of these other states whose 1115s I've seen have been recently approved that look like North Carolina, which is wonderful. Um, uh, but slow, real slow to change, um, in that system. So great, I think for innovation and really wanting to tailor it to your state, not great for trying to create standardization across the country where we're moving the program forward in a consistent way. Um, so it plus and minus. What do you see as the salience of these models within Medicare, whether that's within MA or within ACOs or other kind of the folks who are being served by the Medicare program? So models, you mean that are more holistically thinking about, about health? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, the it is not surprising to anyone that the there are many 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 seniors who are low income fixed income um and are are struggling with transportation housing security food security with those same issues it's one of the reasons in north carolina why we built nc care 360 not as a medicaid platform and in fact nc care 360 does not even sit at the Department of Health and Human Services is intentionally sits outside because we recognize that this needed to be a resource beyond the Medicaid program or even the people that our department tended to work with, which tend to not be Medicare, to be honest. Um, and I think there is so much value in doing using tools like NC Care 360 and thinking about whole person health in the Medicare space. Um, and I think you're watching the folks who work in Medicare in North Carolina take advantage of it. And that's great. Um, and we're watching Medicare Advantage certainly put in more and more rules and encouragement of, of folks thinking about whole person care and um, and such. And it just makes sense, particularly as you think about taking risk. Right. If you're taking total cost of care risk, you want to keep people healthy and out of the hospital. The way you do that is to think about people holistically, uh, right? What are the ways in which I can keep you out of the hospital? Well, a lot of that has to do with housing security and food security and transportation to your doctor's visit and your ability to make sure you can get your medicines and stay on them and get to your primary care doctor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I definitely think there is a role particularly for risk-taking entities, whether you're a Medicare Advantage plan risk-taking entity or you are an ACO with population-based care. I, I think there's definitely a, a place for this. I think we still have more work to do to understand what to pay for. I think conceptually we're there. The question is, what do you pay for? For whom? for how long, right? I, I think those, and that's fine. Let's ask those questions. Let's do those experiments. I think North Carolina is going to put put forward, you know, as they're doing their work, I think a bunch of data I hope will come from North Carolina. I think some of the, if you want my hypothesis of what, what the, the low hanging fruit is going to be around navigation to existing programs like SNAP, for example, so for folks who don't know SNAP, that's Supplemental Nutrition um, Assistance Program. Um, and 
I know from looking at our data in North Carolina, there are so many more folks who are eligible for that program than are signed up for that program. There's so many more people who get that program than actually use it at the grocery store. So there are barriers within that program that I think that can be facilitated um, without adding one new program out there that there is probably a facilitation function that is likely to show the the best return on investment, if you will, uh, that I think will come come out of that. So there there are some places where I think right now risk bearing entities should be figuring out what is their mechanism for navigating folks or helping them sign up for existing programs like SNAP and others um, that I think are going to, you're going to see more and more published data on that in the, in the near term. Then when it gets to other things, like when do you pay for rent for transitional housing, those kinds of things, those are super expensive interventions that clearly are going to need to be very tailored to certain populations at certain moments. I think there will be for sure use cases that will make sense for those, but it will be much more limited than uh, a broader intervention like navigating someone to the SNAP program. I want to kind of go back to the initial approval of the waiver. And you've observed that you were in a Democratic administration in a state with a Republican legislature, and the waiver was approved by the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. So clearly, this was a big bipartisan success to get this going. That might be surprising to some folks, and it might not be at all surprising to other folks. I'm curious kind of how you made that work. Yeah, it was a bipartisan effort. And in North Carolina, when I first arrived, health care was very polarizing. We still to this day in North Carolina do not have Medicaid expansion. Black eye for North Carolina, right? So I just said, I'm really proud of what we did in, in Medicaid, but we do not have Medicaid expansion yet. I, I think it will get done. Um, we've been working and working and explaining it here, but but that is a polarizing issue. But when I talked with folks one-on-one or in small groups on both sides of the aisle about what what they wanted for related to health for their communities, um, that was not polarizing. They wanted to solve problems. Actually, when I first arrived, one of the things that was really ravaging a lot of our communities was the opioid crisis. And that was a place where we had a lot of bipartisan alignment on investment and and working together. And I think that was, was a springboard to then us talking about, well, then how do we take that bipartisanship that we did with the opioid crisis? How do we move that into Medicaid? Where is the common alignment? And when you talk to folks about health, right, it, it's intuitive, it, it's it's not polarizing. It's to say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like if you don't have enough food to eat, why would we spend all this money in the healthcare space when we're not, it's almost like throwing good money after, right? Um, why would we do that if we're not working on the fundamentals? So I, I think it was, it's a place where it made sense to folks. They saw it in their communities. Everyone realized that health can be a bipartisan issue. Um, I really do believe it, even though some there are some places where, where it's polarizing. And so I think it's a really important place for us to build from as we think about consensus building in healthcare going forward. 
I think you mentioned that a lot of other states have recently come forward with their own waivers, which is super exciting. I'm guessing you get phone calls from many of the the leaders, the secretaries of health and the Medicaid directors about, okay, now we have the approval, what should we do? And I'd love for you to share with us a little bit of what advice you give them and what are your hopes for them as they launch onto this path? Well, first I tell them to get in touch with my team, but what I, I tell folks at the 80,000 foot level is you need to have that shared vision and you do need to re-articulate it over and over and over on the why, because this is different. It is different and it's asking people to, to change what they've done and patterns of working and that having the champion that re-articulates the why over and over and over again to keep that momentum going is super important. So I do advise them on like, who's your champion? How are they, uh, how are they going to continue to push forward? Then obviously I, I say get, get great operational folks. Um, I think the execution of these things are so important. We often in the policy world focus so much on strategy and policy that it all falls apart in the execution. And for me, the execution is the strategy. Um, doing this well is really, really important. Making sure that you are listening to communities as you build, as you build. Um, so for example, when we built the pilot, we we structured it in a way to say we did not want health systems to be the leads of, of these of these pilots. And and we basically said you you can't be a health system and because we we specifically did not want to medicalize this aspect of health but there are a lot of benefits of working with health systems so i don't want to paint with such a broad brush here because we worked with our health systems on very very similar issues during our covid response and they were great partners so i i don't i don't think it's a black or white issue but when we were setting up the pilots we really did think about getting into the community and making sure we we weren't just medicalizing another aspect of health, but to really think differently. Um, so so I remind them just a, a bit more about who they are handing the keys to the kingdom to and making sure that they're aligned with the values of what you, you want to accomplish in terms of health. And then data. Yes. I spent a lot of time with these, with folks to be like, this can't happen. This cannot be successful without good data and good evidence. Yes, um, and that may and the, the evidence is needed because you may have to stop doing some things because they don't work. Um, and we have to be open to winding something down if it doesn't work, um, and changing and pivoting. But also, the data is so important to make sure we're doing the targeting, the patient identification appropriately. So those are the big things that I I. I I talk about with with folks as they shape their plans, but mostly I tell them to go talk to the the exit operations. <laughs> yeah, that's, that sounds like very wise recommendation. Shifting gears a little bit, in addition to this important work, uh, you've spoken a lot about the the moves you made to really address equity, and uh, mentioned a couple of those. You started paying PCPs that were serve in in a different way that were serving vulnerable groups. Um, you've talked about changes you made within your own team and talked about you mandated the collection of race and ethnicity data within the COVID response, which many states really struggled to try to get 
accurate data. And I'd love to hear you talk about how you thought about increasing health equity and some of these specific examples and, and, and operational examples where you really were trying to bring that home. Yeah. I will say as a leader, health equity was a journey for me personally over the five years that I was in North Carolina. So I don't want to say like I thought I definitely learned a lot as a leader from my team and from others. Um, and I think the COVID response accelerated my my learning. And it was important that we had set up channels to get feedback from our historically marginalized communities so that I could hear that feedback and say, it's not working. Um, and, and it was really hearing from folks that it was not working and they were not seeing the change. They were not getting access to things that really changed the way we approached our entire COVID response. Because I said, I'm not seeing what they are seeing, meaning I'm not getting the data to make good decisions to reflect what what I am hearing our stakeholders say is happening in their communities. And I need that information in order to make good decisions. And so we really flipped the way we did everything. And what I realized, number one, as a leader, I had to personally prioritize equity. It couldn't be my health equity leader, which I had, but it couldn't be someone, it couldn't be delegated. And that's what I want most leaders to hear is like, you cannot delegate the responsibility for equity. It has to live with you and it has to permeate every decision and piece of the organization. That was a big learning um, for me. And what I would say, we have a lot of work to do in terms of evidence generation here. I think there's a lot of focus on equity, but if you actually go to the literature to say, okay, I want to deliver diabetes care differently, what do I do? What's the right evidence? There's not there's not a ton of evidence. I think we've been so focused on raising awareness of the issue, which is important. And we, frankly, we're, we could still even do better uh, in terms of our data collection there. But it's so interesting that we really have to spend time and the academic community, I hope we'll do a lot more evaluation of like, well, okay, I have an engaged leader. They want to do the right thing. They have the evidence and they, what should they spend their money and their time doing differently? Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think that is where we still have evidence to generate um, in, in order to guide leaders who want to, to uh, make sure that they're approaching things the right way to help them make good decisions. Yeah. And I guess just also, I think the other role of data is to create, enable learning cycles, right? So if we're going to be implementing at scale, as you said, across these very different models, then we better the heck have good data that allow us to quickly look at what's working and what's not working and share that in a transparent way. And one thing that I find interesting just in Medicaid is it's easy to find the waivers. It's hard to find. Mm -hmm. The evaluations are mm -hmm. long overdue and often happen years after the program. So I imagine we might want to I don't know what the right model would be, but some kind of infrastructure that allows us to look more rapidly at the results across the country would be amazing. Yeah, I think that's, um, and I'll say when you think about the North, back to the North Carolina um, pilots that are, are going on right now, uh, the first call what, for me was to the, a partner at UNC who is doing the evaluation. 
So you need the evaluators at the table developing the program with you so that they they actually will have the tools to be able to evaluate it. So they created the evaluation mechanism. So they determine, well, how many patients do we need to have in, in this in order for it to be statistically significant? What is the des- study design? So think about evaluation the moment you're putting the program together. That's great advice. Um one of the things you touched on is these, uh, in, in, by rolling out programs like this, you're also signaling business opportunities. And that could be for local and community organizations, but it could also be for venture-backed companies and for organizations that are looking to help better serve the Medicaid population. Did you see much of that in this space? And what pointers or guidance would you give to the leadership teams of companies that are looking to better serve Medicaid? Well, I think there's a couple things embedded there. First, what I, w- I would say, I hope that as we um, potentially use more levers and, and economic levers within healthcare, that we think about how we use those in coordination with wealth creation in underserved communities, right? So you can get the double benefit, right? You're not just helping someone get food, but if it's coming from a new business from that community, you've created wealth in that community and you've helped someone in the community, right? Right. And so I would encourage particularly policymakers as they're thinking about it, and we very much did in North Carolina, not to forget wealth generation opportunities as you're as we're putting new money out in the world. Um, and so, so I'll just, I'll, I'll just say that, um, because ultimately what we, what I hope to have happen is that no one needs Medicaid, right? Is that, ev- that I'm lifting up everyone economically. And this is where the, you know, the, across the aisle that resonates a lot, right? Is we want to raise all boats, um, so that folks are getting their jobs that have, have insurance from, from their job. Um, and so again, I just put that out there as we think of these new ways of conceptualizing delivery and services that, that think about wealth creation in those underserved communities. So that's number one. Then in terms of like companies and, you know, being in the Medicaid program, I absolutely think there is, there is opportunity. Um, I, I do think they need to be exceptionally good at at navigating the the many states in which they will work. There will be different contexts in each and every state. I don't think it's not possible. I just think you need to go in understanding the variation state to state and and know that that is that is a expectation of and a competency that your business will need to have. But there's so much opportunity. There's so much low hanging fruit. There is so much. So many opportunities to do even a small amount better. <laughs> um, that that I I think it is so such a wide open field, but you, you will see more and more folks unlock uh, this as we go. Um, so I'm I'm excited to see what comes. I mean, the folks deserve it, right? The folks in Medicaid does absolutely deserve all of the innovation that we're seeing in other sectors of healthcare. When we first met, uh, one of my areas of focus was health data and health information sharing, and then went on to lead um, the largest network in California that was working with 30 million folks. And um, we had a lot of conversations with the plans that were implementing California's equivalent program about how we could help them 
identify needs, uh, look across programs at who is getting one service but not another, look at evaluation. And and what I found at that time is it might have just been too early because people were so heads heads down trying to implement that these questions about how to use clinical data to really inform the answer those questions, um, it was a little bit hard to gain traction. North Carolina also has a pretty robust HIE. I'm curious how you thought about their role. Yeah, no, COVID accelerated our work with the HIE from the state perspective even more. And North Carolina had a an opportunity maybe to, to rock it forward because we had we have individual identifiers in North Carolina that really helped us. And the HIE kind of played that central hub, um, if you will, um, with with those shared identifiers. And when we didn't have them, we had ways of, of fig- figuring out and, and placing identifiers. So because you need to know that Mr. Smith here is the same Mr. Smith in this program and that program and that. Um, and so that, that unique identifier across all was really, really helpful and I think accelerated our work a ton. Um, and the HIE obviously, you know, really you know, great partner, but still a lot of work to do um, there in in terms of really getting to use cases that matter in the moment. Um, Here's a a good one where we wanted patient level vaccine data so that we could then better target vaccine messaging to folks who hadn't gotten vaccinated. And we got some of the way there, but we really like we couldn't fully unlock it, even with all of the 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 work that we we had behind the scenes. Um, And so never could quite quite. do all of the creativity that I think could come and benefits that could come from that. Um, but that's the, there are a lot of important use cases, particularly in crisis uh, response that, that are really, really important. That was similar to something we did in California where we worked with plans to match up the vaccine registry data with the claims data that we had from plans and could identify homebound seniors people who are using oxygen, like very specific clinical subgroups that were at very high risk and not yet vaccinated. And then that plan worked with a culturally competent outreach um, partner, Same Sky Health, to do um, language-specific uh, language outreach to those folks. And, and they just published the results and the results were quite compelling. But I love that example. Yeah. And honestly, it's never the technology that got in our way. It was always, understand, like I care about patient privacy a ton, um, but we haven't figured out how to balance privacy with um, getting to a place where the data is working for the person. But we, we have to find a better balance. It's not technology. It's really on the privacy because we have to figure out a way to be able to protect privacy, but also link data systems together um, uh, in, a, in a more strategic way. I think we'll be hearing more about those topics on this podcast because I think that data governance piece and the uh, also being able to navigate across state law, federal law, uh, individual organization restrictions is not for the faint of heart. So I I look forward to talking more about that. Um, A closing, two closing questions. The first is, what's a leadership lesson you learned the hard way? 
Oof. Oh, so many lessons from COVID. Um, you know, in a particularly in a crisis, you you have the, a bias towards action and acting fast. And you know what they say is, you know, go if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go, <laughs> but but it does take time. And I, I think I mentioned even here there were some moments early on in COVID where where we got some very hard to hear feedback, right? I count myself as a leader who I care about every North Carolinian and every community where they were saying, you are failing some of our communities. Um, We are not seeing on the ground the response you're talking about when you're with the governor up on on television. That's not coming to our community. And that was really uncomfortable, you know, uncomfortable to sit in that, like the folks that you wanted so badly to be helping (laughs) were telling you, you're not helping me. Um, and, uh, it was, it was really important. So from a leadership lesson, one, it was important to hear it. And I think often we, we try to remove ourselves from uncomfortable situations. It's sort of human, right. To not sit and hear the uncomfortable, the anger, the fear, the, the disappointment, um, it, you don't want to feel those things. Right. And so, but it was really important to do it because it changed how I thought about what what we were doing super early on in COVID. We're, this was it was a marathon, not a sprint. I could have said, "Oh, we're, we you know we can never get better." Forget it. No, we were in April of 2020 when I heard those comments. We we had time and we did make major changes and make major investments because of, I wanted to help those those uh, communities. So that that was important as a leader to make sure you you are keeping yourself open to hear those hard conversations and to get that feedback. And listening is so important. I think leadership, we're often taught, you know, it's the talking and it's the doing, but it sometimes it's the listening that is really, really critical. That that sounds like very, very potent advice that um, is often hard to follow. My final question is, what's a question you wish I'd asked that I didn't ask? And what's your answer? Um, so I think I've been really thinking about the topic of trust a lot, um, in leaders. How do you trust within your own team, uh, trust with the communities you're hoping to impact? Um, and so maybe as you think about, cause I know you're going to get into the, cause you are so good on like the data and the policy and the implementation the underlying all that is about trust, but it, and it seems ephemeral, but I actually think it's very tactical. Um, and what are like the tactical ways in which you as a leader can can build and maintain trust over time? Um, and for me, I was reflecting that a lot of that started from the fact that I worked for a governor who trusted me, um, trusted me and my team. Um, and I was reflecting on how important that was to have had the opportunity to work in an environment and for, for a boss that, you know, that, that trusted you and allowed me to sort of run and um, try hard things uh, for our state. And that was pretty profound and and quite lucky. Um, And I feel very grateful for that, but trust is so important uh, in so many aspects of the, of the stories that I, that I tell. All right. So grateful to have you join today. Thank you so much. And I just really am struck by 
the depth and authenticity of your leadership. And um, I'm so excited. We didn't get a chance to talk about your new role, but maybe you'll come back and do that. And I'm really excited to have you be there with a bunch of people I love and think so highly of. Yes. So can't wait to see what comes out of this new work for you. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to thank Dr. Mandy Cohen for her incredible insights and for reminding us that data is so foundational to the work that states like North Carolina are doing to address social drivers of health. Other takeaways from this conversation. First, there is bipartisan support for whole person care. Second, we need rapid evidence on the impact of new social care programs. And third, we really need to push for a shared holistic record of patient health. More background on Dr. Mandy Cohen. She was recently named the EVP of Allidaid and the CEO of Allidaid Care Solutions, scaling value-based care with doctors in charge. Dr. Cohen received her MD from Yale and her master's in public health from Harvard. She trained in internal medicine at Mass General. This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams, my podcast producer is Avery Moore Kloss. I've included some important resources in the show notes that you might find interesting, including information on Medicaid 1115 waivers and the pilots Dr. Cohen led in North Carolina. There is more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams. Claudia Williams.